Psalm 101. Is that my page? Psalm 101. We all picked up on Edward's little slide into the announcements about his birthday tomorrow. The spirit of 76 will be upon him for at least a year. Good to have each of you here with us as well. It's good to have Brady's parents here with us. They're up from Alabama. Brady was at our house a couple weeks ago telling us about home life. He said, my dad is a bivocational pastor. So praise the Lord and thank you for your ministry and service there as well. Good to have each of you in with us today. Let's read together Psalm 101. It's got a verse that many of us know and that we recognize, but as we read it together, I want us to look at the whole of the psalm today as we look at our responsibilities as we continue in that part of the study. And in that, we will see the responsibilities that we have towards entertainment. Let's begin reading in verse number one. The Bible says, I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. O when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all that wicked of the land, that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. Father, this morning as we come to you in the word of God, I pray that you would help us to know the truth. That we would see it, not as we hope to see it in our flesh and in our nature, but as you intend for us to see and study. May we know what David is speaking of here. May we understand it in our own lives. Help us, I pray, this morning not to just get hung on one verse, which is a rich and powerful verse, verse number three, but to see where it falls within the context of the overall passage. Bless in this hour, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at the responsibilities we have in our families towards eternal things. This morning we turn our attention to the things of entertainment. I could say this very comfortably this morning. The whole world has gone mad after amusement, after entertainment, after the things that will capture our focus and divert our attention. By entertainment, I don't mean to hold court with someone. That is one way of saying I have entertained someone. I don't mean in that sense to bring someone into your company. That kind of entertaining is a good thing. It's called fellowship in the Bible. What I mean rather is to use the word as it is in the Old English, and that is to amuse ourselves in activity that is self-gratifying. We've become inundated with amusement. Consider the following about entertainment and our world. First, the movie industry. Did you know who made up the ratings for the movie industry? The movie industry. But that would be like asking the fox to guard the hen house. The rating system was contrived in 1968. 
Ask yourself if you were alive in 1968 if there was that much good or godly thing going on in this country. And the answer is absolutely not. Yet that's what it was contrived. Ask yourself further that when they reprised the movie rating standards in 1984, if this was a godly nation. And the answer is most definitely no, once again. Yet the movie industry is, as revenue tickets only, a $41 billion a year industry, not including the streaming services. Friends, we just sent as a nation made up money to Ukraine of $40 billion. And yet we spend on entertainment just at the movies every year as a nation, $41 billion. Television, according to the CDC study, shows us that the average daily hours for children in front of a screen uh, fall into this category. Ages 8 to 10 will spend six hours daily in front of a screen. 11 to 14 will spend eight hours. Let's imagine they get the recommended sleep of nine. That is 17 hours spoken for in a 24-hour day before they even go to school. 15 to 18-year-olds have seven and a half hours of screen time every day. The average of watching just pure television of those same groups, 8 to 10 is 4 hours, 11 to 14 is 5 hours, and 15 to 18 is 4 and a half hours. That is a government study. You ever lied to the government? <laughs> On a survey? Or a study? Hopefully not. We'll talk about that in another week. But the point is, we all probably fudge the numbers just a little bit, and yet they are astronomically high for each home. The music industry, and this could be and has been a whole message unto itself, simply for today, understand that music paints a picture, and then the words fill in the blanks of that music that is being played. But the music industry brings in $30 billion a year as a function of entertainment. The sports entertainment. Oh, Pastor, I thought you were going to leave that one alone. Oh, man, oh, I wish you had left that one well enough alone. Sorry. The combined NFL, NBA, MLB, and collegiate athletics makes up almost $30 billion annually of entertainment spent just from the consumer aspect of it, not including sponsorships, and television revenues. But there is one I want to at least put our attention on that I think many of us forget today. Young people, what is that other area of entertainment that I often forget to bring up? Social media. No, that's what your parents struggle with. Games. Oh, Pastor, I didn't think you were going there. Some mom and dads are thinking, oh, Pastor, I didn't think you were going there. Social media certainly is its own problem and its own devices. And certainly it is a form of entertainment in the form of depression, often as we read what people post and tweet about themselves. But gaming is bigger than all of the other medias combined in annual revenue. Do you believe that? It's why the tech companies today are crawling hand over fist to get a space in the gaming industry. I found this chart and it is an interesting chart. It's called the rise of gaming revenue, and it's visualized. It's put together by visual, excuse me, visual capitalists, and it traces it back to 1972 and the introduction of Pong. How many of us played Pong? All right, I played it on the Atari. I didn't play it in an arcade, but that in 1972 is when it was introduced, and some of you of the older generation are gleefully smiling at me. Do you know what you unleashed back then? 
Watch as it has grown. The color codings there show you the different ways in which things have grown. The console is in the kind of bluish green at the bottom. Arcades is the deep blue in the middle. PCs is the light blue. The red are mobile games. The gray is handhelds. Think Game Boys for those of us of the 80s and 90s generation. And the very top is the cloud and the new virtual reality or the headsets, which are probably the worst of all the gaming environments because it's totally immersive. But look at that number. The total revenue for last year was $165 billion spent. That is larger than every other nation's military budget except for the United States. That is the money spent on video games and gaming. That's an amazing, amazing fact. The way I love this chart is you can see where the arcades have gone. Nowhere. They started that way. But they have all but disappeared. The console gave way to com uh, the computer or the computational approach to us in the 1980s and the 1990s. But what do we all have now that we play nonstop? I would argue to the teenagers that said social media, social media is just another form of gaming. You're just playing games with each other in a chat. Look what I can post. I made this recipe. I tell you a secret, nobody cares what you made. <laughs> you say, well, Pastor, you have a Facebook page. Yeah, when was the last time I posted on it? I have a Twitter account. The other day, they asked me if I'm a bot because I haven't posted since 2012. Effectively, I am a bot. I'm a bot to do nothing on it. So we understand what the social media is due to us. This chart, I think, is very compelling. Most preachers preach against, if they're going to preach against something, and by the way, I'm not going to. You can rest easy today. The introduction this morning is to just set the scene for how we as homes need to engage the process of thinking differently about our entertainment. All I'm simply suggesting to you is we all hear preaching against the evils of the video game console and how it will suck your child in and it will keep them there. It does $33 billion. $85 billion is on your phone or your tablet. We have too big a crush on the candy, we might say. Women and men, by the way, are equal in the global composition of gamers today. That blows my mind. When you think of gamers, what do you think of? You think of like a 26, 27-year-old man eating Cheetos who's white and living in his parents' basement. <laughs> some of you are trying not to smile because I may have been too close to home for some of us. right? I remember back when I was a singles pastor in the church in Virginia, we used to have a video game night because all of those white single guys that lived in D.C. or were in the Marine Corps would come and play video games. There's a lot of other guys I would go out and play basketball with and do other things with. But I could get a lot of those guys into a room. So that's our concept. But that culture is even changing. According to recent studies, 94% of all children ages 13 through 17 play video games across all platforms. Listen to that number. 94% are amusing themselves with something that has no lasting value. 73%, this one cracked me up, 
of a recent AARP study showed that of adults 55 and plus, 73% of them play mobile games. See, are you against these games? No, we have a Switch in our house, and I don't mean to spank our kids with. I mean, we have a Nintendo Switch in our house, and we are playing games sometimes. Uh, we like sometimes on a Sunday night to go home and have a good old Mario Kart race. But it doesn't dominate our life. There's nothing wrong with the amusement factor. But when we are talking about numbers and statistics on the scale that we are going to talk about, we start to realize there is a domination. There is an addiction that is developing within the lives of young people. I found this stat interesting. Do you know the average age of a gamer? Well, what do you think the average age of a video game player is today? Two, Edward says. That might be our, our mental approach to it. What do you think? It sounds like bingo in here. <laughs> bingo. Somebody won. 33. 33 years of age. The average gamer has been playing video games, mobile, console, or any sort, for over 15 years on average. Gaming has become a generational amusement form of entertainment, and the devil knows that if he cannot corrupt us as a people, then he will gladly confuse us and then co-opt our attention so that we spend time doing frivolous things instead of fruitful things. It's just the bottom line. It's just what we know. Let me suggest to you, if I may, for this morning, a book for parents about entertainment. By the way, it's especially for video game addiction that form in the lives of children and how we can build a hedge against allowing your home, our homes, I should be, should say, to be run by the entertainment culture. Uh, Dr. Carrie Chapman and Arlene Pelican wrote this book, Screen Kids. If you don't have it, I'll buy it for you if you come tell me. It's that important. Jessica read it and she said, Kyle, you've got to read this. She is my book nook she reads every book almost every book before i read it she passes along good ones to me and sometimes rarely sometimes i will pass good ones on to her mine are more of the political persuasion and christian politics and she has no care for those she has more care for what the home and the impact that the culture is having home this is an excellent book five relational skills every child needs in a tech driven world is the subtitle of the book it's excellent and worthy of your consumption i would suggest so we've become addicted to amusement. We have an insatiable desire to be entertained. So it is within this message series that I want to express that a different home must be able to separate ourselves out as followers of Christ from the rest of humanity. If Christians cannot master their amusements, then our world will only continue to stumble straight towards hell. David, in this psalm, gives us an idyllic psalm. Psalm 101 is a psalm, I believe, that is a millennial psalm. It is a psalm of how mankind will conduct themselves under Christ's direct rule. But it doesn't mean just because it is idyllic that it isn't ideal for us to use in principle in our everyday living. So let's look into the psalm to find help for our entertainment lives this morning. We begin in verses 3 and 4. We'll come back to verses 1 and 2, I promise, but it begins with the template for our grounding. 
the template for our grounding. How do we become settled in a world dominated by amusement, in a world dominated by entertainment? By the way, I just gave to you the entertainment amusements that all of us can engage in. I didn't give to you the entertainment of going places or where we spend our free and vacation time. Some of amusement is good. We all know the word amuse means to not think. It is not a bad thing sometimes to live a day or two or a week not thinking about work or all the stress or all the problems. Jessica and I as a family have set aside that for at least two weeks every year, we will get away from the rat race. You're a pastor. Yes, try being a pastor of a growing church that cares about people. There is a need to get away and to have some amusement. But it shouldn't be that our everyday lives are absolutely dominated by entertainment and amusement. The template for our grounding deals with our outer and inner man. Our inner and outer man must be grounded, settled in what is right and what is wrong. Our amusement, the things that we are drawn to in our flesh, in our free time, will be unhealthy, sinful, and will draw us away from God if we don't have some grounded principles or approaches to it. David points first in verse number three that we must ground our attitudes. It's the way we think about it. This is the verse that we all know so well. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. The idea of turning aside is to purposefully cause us to sin. Let me ask a question. I'm going to put this in a lot of different genres this morning. If I were to say to you, hey, go out and shoot someone, would you say, sure thing, Pastor, I'll go do it? No, but if you went on your video game and went out and shot someone, you would think nothing of it. The thinking in that amusement takes you to a place that you yourself would never do. But over time and conditioning, the mind begins to rationalize what we might do or what we want to do. I love to go out and just shoot people. What? That would be horrific for someone to say. We've watched these things play out in the news and in our real lives, and we understand the, tra the tragedy and the trauma of it. And yet we think nothing! Indulging ourselves in brutalized killing. We tell ourselves that we can't live without a source of entertainment or that we might even go on as far as to say we can't deprive our kids of the amusement that they so desperately need. They need an outlet, Pastor. You might even posit this, what I call farcical, far-reaching thought. I can handle it. Ooh. David couldn't. He writes this before he sins with Bathsheba. That's why I say it's an idyllic psalm. It certainly sets forward perfect principles that we ought to follow. But even David failed in his perfect principles that were set forward by the Holy Spirit of God under his pen. Rather than embrace wickedness, we should eliminate its place and influence in our lives. We must develop an attitude that I will hate the things that God hates. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. Our culture, by the way, is not getting more righteous. And that which they are building and that which they are bringing to your living room day after day after day, that which they are putting on your mobile device and in front of the eyes of your children, that which they are placing there is not drawing them closer to Jesus Christ. Oh, but I've got a Bible app on this. Great. How much time did they spend this week on their Bible app? 
five minutes, 20 minutes in the week. See, Pastor, I don't know if I like these series of messages. Last week was tough. This week is tough. They're only going to get tougher. Because we are living in a fallen age. David would separate himself from unholy things, he says here. He uses the word wicked thing in verse number three. He says, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. The word or the phrasing in the Hebrew means a thing of Belial or an affair of, an, of the abandoned one. In other words, what the devil himself delights in. I will not put anything in front of me to entertain or amuse me that the devil delights in. You could say it this way. Some things have their very origin in the soul of Satan himself. And we can see it. The second thing that we're told to ground at the beginning of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is grounding our actions. Attitudes are one thing. There's a lot of families that have pious principles they try to live by, but they don't put them into practice. Attitudes and actions have to go hand in hand together. You get the idea from the words in verse number four, a froward heart shall depart from me. The idea of depart here in the Hebrew has the sense of being literally forcibly plucked up and thrown away. It's not like, well, it just walked out of my life one day. It literally has the idea of being forced up, plucked up, and cast away from us. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. You get the idea that God wants his people to take a serious approach to ridding their lives of all evil things, all wickedness, all things that are harmful, and rather adopting into their lives holy things. Can I tell you, genuine revival is always followed by a return to biblical morality. And it's when our homes begin to understand that this is a wicked thing. It's of the devil that we are not going to engage in the movies, television, music, games, or social media that would draw us away from God. God does not make himself at home in a society which thinks that faith and filth can coexist. I put in your outlines there. Separation from sin is essential to spiritual health. It is contrary to say that you or your child can constantly imbibe fleshly, carnal, corrupt entertainment and still be Christ-like. That is a lie. You don't believe it, and you know it. I don't believe it in my home, and I know it. By the way, I'll add, God isn't fooled by your lies. The word for wicked in these verses carries the idea of moral depravity. In the Septuagint, the Greek equivalent of the word that the translators there used was the word pornoros, from which we get our word pornography. David knew God well enough to know that he would not make himself at home with a pornographic culture, and yet that's what we do all the time. It's no surprise to me that our young people today struggle with their physical relationships because they are allowed to be bombarded by physical scenes. The Bible still says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it is good that a man not touch a woman. And yet we find everywhere men and women touching each other who are not married to one another. A fitting word for our present America, isn't it? A pornographic culture. Our country was founded by men who crossed the ocean looking for religious freedom. 
They wrote their faith in God into the constitution of our very country. They stamped it upon the coins. They put it within our pledges. And they founded their institutions of higher learning on these biblical principles through the ages of this nation. There is not a country like us in the world. And yet, where else can a pollster report that 50% of the population claims to have some sort of religious experience, which they would describe as being born again, yet at the same time, our nation is drowning in filth? Why? Because we choose not to live holy. We choose not to be different. Religious life in America today is certainly not the result of Holy Ghost revival. If it were, the landscape of entertainment would be vastly different. Genuine revival is always followed by a return to biblical morality. I'll say it again. God does not make himself at home in a society or in a home which thinks that faith and filth can coexist. They can't. So having set forward a template in verses 3 and 4, for grounding our attitudes and our actions, we move secondly to the temptations that are abound. There were the wicked, the froward, the liars, the slanderers, the high look, those of a proud heart. All of these are given in this psalm by David. And they were in David's day, and they are in our day. They are everywhere today, and on nearly every screen that we would turn on or listen to in a song. David fought against the same things that we do. He had the same besetting sins that we do. He was tempted with what was before his eyes. He was tempted with what he listened to about God and about our human race in song and in lyric. He was tempted to waste his time and not spend it for God's glory. We find two temptations in verses 5 and 6 that dominate our modern entertainment. First, letter A, the temptation to be selfish. All of these words that were used, the wicked, the froward, the liar, the slander, the high low, and the proud heart, all of these are self-centered individuals that are trying to lift up or promote themselves while tearing someone else down. The one person privately attacks the values in verse number 5 and virtue of his neighbor without the neighbor knowing or being able to defend himself. That person, by the way, we could call them very narrow-minded. I'm going to do this in secret. Why? Because they're so narrow-minded, their arguments can't hold water in the light of public scrutiny. The other person in verse number five openly dismisses everyone because they're smarter. They have the high look. They have the proud heart. They're more knowledgeable. They're more cosmopolitan than you poor simpleton believers in Jesus Christ who follow the Bible. How dare they? My dad and mom don't know what they're talking about. My parents are old fuddy-duddies. I know better than them. That's a high look, and that's a proud heart. Media companies do this all the time to Christians, they belittle us and berate us. They subvert our values and openly mock our virtue or our goodness. They know better than us, and their approach to attacking and minimizing even causes us as believers to begin to question, why am I so inclined? Why do I believe this? And the problem for most Christian homes is they don't have an answer to that. You don't know. Why do you believe what you believe? Why are you in a church that believes this? Why did you even come this morning? Some of you might be asking yourself that question right now. I don't know. Why did I come today? <laughs> they feed our self-centeredness. I asked the boys permission for this. In our house, 
during the school year, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the boys are allowed to have an hour of their switch time. And again, that doesn't mean they're whippings. It means like the video game console. Jessica and I, again, I talked to him, and Drew's over here, I'm like, oh. I asked their permission. I can tell you and testify before the Lord that our three happy, healthy, and generally holy, they're not perfect, they're my kids, but holy boys, when they finish an hour of watching a video screen, they come out monsters. <laughs> you say, well, that's just because it's your kids and they're the problem. I defy parents to watch carefully their children before they play the video game, which is self-consuming. Again, that does not mean that we can't allow that in their life. They have to learn how to regulate the selfishness that comes upon them. And I'm glad for how my boys try. They do a lot better than their daddy did at their age. I'm thankful for my parents who did their best to keep me on the straight and narrow. But simply to say, this is the approach. They feed our selfishness. This is the tactic of the serpent in the garden. It's not an all-out assault, but it's a private slandering of our values. The line usually goes this way. No one thinks like that anymore. Who believes that way? They go on in the vein of their subtle subversion and say, you do you, man. No restraints. Don't let them tell you no. How dare your parents tell you no on that? They might also hear this. You can be what you want because that's who you really are. All of these lies are bound up in the adult programming and children's programming that, programming that dominate our movies, our television, our songs, and our games of our present culture. <laughs> David wanted nothing to do with the people who occupied themselves attacking his values in verses 5 and 6. He wanted nothing to do with people who minimized his virtue. We should follow his lead. We find the selfishness of these two groups are summarized in two lies. The lie of popularity and the lie of majority. The first person in verse 5 believed the lie of popularity. The narrow-minded soul is bigoted against your worldview, and nothing will dissuade him of that fact. That's why television programming has not changed in the last 40 years, because they are trying to destroy the home and the family. It's been going the same direction. They will privately or secretly, subversively slander your thinking. Today, we've all bought into the lie that Christian values are not popular. Why is that? Because they're not. Listen, every time Christian values are actually tried in a home, the home is much more glorious as a result. Right. Happier, holier, healthier. Every single time. Well, I can find one that wasn't. Well, you might find some crazy and corrupt people who aren't following the Bible and have begun their own cult. But when you follow and live by this book alone, your home is happier, healthier, and holier every single time. Amen. By the way, here's the lie of popularity. Do you know where TV ratings come from? TV ratings come from the Nielsen Group. Now, I'm going to be careful. I don't want to be sued by them. But as a pastor, I'm allowed to quote their website, I think. Nielsen, the top company rating TV shows, selects families to be a part of their rating system. If you were to go on their website, you would find they have three qualifications or categorizations as to how and whom they pick to rate their shows. You will hear, this is a top-rated show. Have you ever noticed, by the way, top-rated shows end up with nine other shows exactly like that top-rated show? I mean, we started with American Idiot, Idol, and then we have all the other things that followed from it. Some of you are like, oh, man, you're really into close to home now. 
By the way, what does this mean when they can selectively choose the home? It means that they can manufacture a desired outcome of broadcast TV, the movie industry, music, and the advertisers, what they will say is popular. Why is it that every single advertiser is hook, line, and sinker following what the modern culture says is popular? You're believing a lie, and a lie is designed to direct culture toward the bent of ungodliness in its product. This is not to say that they are to blame exclusively, but they profit off of appeasing and moving the needle of morality in certain directions. From their own website, I read, We can't ask every home to participate, so we carefully select a sample of homes from communities all over the country to represent the entire TV audience. Households are randomly selected, and every household in the U.S. has a chance of being selected, no matter where it's located. If you continue to read on that, they will say we'll pick randomly a county, we'll pick randomly a neighborhood, and then we will choose the homes from that neighborhood who will be part of our rating system. Now, that doesn't mean that good Christians can't become part of the rating system. I was talking this week with my barber, and he said, guess what I got in the mail this week? A Nielsen's rating box. I said, no way! I said, I'm preaching on that! And he said, yeah, absolutely. He said, so they did send one to me. He goes, but I don't know anybody else that's ever had. I'm going to take an informal survey. Anybody ever been part of the Nielsen's rating group? Real high. All right, so in a church like ours, we're at about 20%, 15%. But does this 15% recognize or show what the whole of the population is? And the answer is no. They are able to move the needle at their whim and at their discretion. They are not the evil ones, but they certainly can help promote what becomes popular. We all buy into the scam hook, line, and sinker. We allow our kids to tell us that this show is popular and everybody's watching it. What's so wrong with such a popular thing, Dad? The answer is it may not even be that popular. We are vain people and we operate our lives in vanity. We don't want to miss out on the popular culture. We don't want our kids to be made fun of or out of the loop on the latest thing. When did our homes become so weak-minded? I'll tell you when they did. When our homes started worrying more about what amuses them than what aligns them with God. The second lie is the lie of the majority. The second group here is of a high look and a proud heart. David says, I will not suffer such a one. With the amount of our entertainment focused on homosexuality and the dysphoria of a transvestite, you would think that somewhere between 25 and 50% of the population were of that lifestyle. That's what it feels like sometimes when you turn on the television. The truth is, and these are from statistics from the government, less than 4% of the population is made up of either one of those lifestyle categories. Did you know that born-again Christians make up 12% of the United States population? People who now say, I am a born-again Christian and can definitively say that is putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. That makes up still 12%. That is full three times more, and yet we are ghosted. We are vaporized. We are nothing burgers to them but 4%. Why? Because they are trying with their high look and their proud heart to push a story upon the rest of the world. The overwhelming majority of people who live those lifestyles are promoted and popular, popular, popularized Excuse me, so that it, that lifestyle, can be normalized. That's why they've become popular. Believers should never hate a homosexual, 
nor should we loathe a transvestite. We should pity them and pray for them. We love every human being, for Christ died for the sins of all mankind. We do, however, exercise our discernment, one of the things that David sings about, and we'll talk about in a moment in verse 1, in that their state is a chosen state, and that they are not the majority in this country. Their high look and their proud heart cause them to argue dogmatically and defiantly, but biologically and biblically, we can disagree. Amen. Yet music... Movies, television, and games are making that lifestyle nearly ubiquitous around us. There are four to five times more born-again believers in America than homosexuals. There are 15 times more evangelicals, that is all faith denominations, than those of that lifestyle. Yet, you wouldn't believe it by the representation in modern amusement or entertainment. The temptation to be selfish is found in the lies and the arguments of or popularity excuse me, and majority. David then moves to the temptation abounding to be sensual, letter B. Verse number six, he says, mine eyes. He's already said he won't set any wicked thing before them, but now he's gonna say what he's going to do with his eyes when the temptation comes. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. That little phrase, serve me, literally means it will minister to my needs. That's exactly what we do when we turn to the world for our entertainment and our amusement. We want them to minister to our needs. Whether it's the lust of our eyes, whether it's the lust of our heart and the passion and pride of our own life. Whatever it is, we want them to minister to our needs. And David says, no, 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 mine eye will look to the faithful of the land, not the faithless of the land. David determines that his eyes will be on the faithful. That's where he will entertain himself. That's where his attention will be placed, where he will put his focus. The word faithful carries the idea of David wanting men of integrity to associate with him in the administration of his actual kingdom within this song. A recent survey indicated that over 70% of popular music in all but two genres had vulgarity, profanity, or lewdness in their lyrics. Stop and think about that. 70% have that. And yet there are young people that are in our church that will mock when the pastor says that. Good luck to them. I pray for them. Because it's a problem in their heart. By the way, there's parents that will mock when the pastor says that. Good luck to them. If you are filling your mind with vulgarity, profanity, and lewdness, don't be surprised as to what comes out. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. By the way, you might be thinking, what are the two categories where the, they're not at 70% in their lyrics? The answer was classical music and country music. And sadly for you country fans out there, their vulgarity, profanity, and lewdness accounted for 57%, not 70 And You are kicking everybody today. I'm kicking myself today. So you country music fans out there, you're just marginally less polluted for listening to that music. For the movie, movie industry, they created their own rating system, as I said earlier. That's like asking the fox to guard the hen house. David says, do not set your eyes on what is sensual to hope for uplifting company. You won't find it there. Rather, set your eyes on the faithful of the land. But, Pastor, it's hard to find streaming services or good content, movies that match up with my standard of living. Here are some that Jessica and I have found through great 
effort through the years. Pure flicks. You can write these down. I get no kickback from these people. I actually don't wish I did. I don't really know how profitable they are. Because usually when I say it, people start laughing. Yeah, but Pastor, I can't watch that. This goes back to the heart of the issue. What is your attitude? Ground your attitude in what is right. Pure flicks is one. Here's another one that we stumbled upon. She likes it more than I do. It's called Up Faith and Family. How many have ever heard of that? You can buy, you can get the app. It's literally $4 a month subscription if you really want to fill content in your life. Here, here's another one you can put down, and I will get some Snickers, especially on this one. And I don't mean the candy bars. VidAngel. How many know what that is? Okay. I don't like their tagline, right? I, I will say it here in church, but it will connote naughtiness in your mind. VidAngel's motto is, watch whatever the bleep you want. They use the word bleep. But the point is, they actually have a filtering service that extracts all profanity, all nudity, all of those things. And through your streaming, you can stream Amazon Prime and others, and it will extract all of them. The other night, we tried it just on purpose on a show, and we wanted to see, did the show go from being an hour to being like the opening credits and the closing credits? <laughs> And truthfully, we didn't lose too much of the plot line. It was probably 45 to 48 minutes, which used to be 53 to 55 minutes. But it skips, and all of a sudden you'll see a guy here, and next thing you know, when you blink, he'll be over here, and you go, oh, okay, well, they were talking about something I don't want to hear. Is that the perfect solution? I don't think it is, but it is, an, uh, it is a solution to the problem. They also have their own content, which is what we like them for. Uh, they're making their own new programming, and it's Godly and wholesome. All I'm saying is there are companies out there, but a different home is going to have to engage in avoiding the temptation of, hey man, everybody's doing it. Not everybody. Some are trying. Are those vehicles perfect? No, but they are far more faithful than the filth that Hollywood produces. So, Pastor, in closing, how can we win this battle? I'm long and I must be quick. How can we be different? Well, let's talk finally about the triumphant founder. What do we build upon? What is the foundation? What is it that we become victorious in? Where do we begin? Well, we begin where David did. His focus for his home was twofold. And he begins and ends this psalm with the foundation for success. It begins, letter A, with a commitment to wholesomeness. Verse number one, I will sing of the mercy and judgment of Unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. Now, it's interesting. We draw a conclusion that he's talking about singing of God, but it seems in the first phrase of verse 1, he simply says, I will sing of mercy and judgment. We assign that to God because he is both merciful and he is discerning. He has got perfect justice. But it seems that he's singing of mercy and judgment in all of its forms. To the recesses of an eastern palace, especially where usually they were places or, or locations of passion, lust, and excess were given free course in the halls, there a monarch could indulge in every whim that he wanted to. Caprice and carnality were allowed unbridled in their indulgence. But David effectively says in verses 1 and 2, not in my house. He had a commitment to wholesomeness. Now, sadly, David did not hold to his own philosophical idealism. 
But that does not mean that the intent of the principle is wrong. What must be true in each Christian home for triumph is a commitment to that which is wholesome, pure, true, good, and godly. Rather, what we have far too often is a lack of commitment to any standard, or worse, a commitment to appeasing our kids' whining and sinful attitude. David was committed to music that spoke of God's mercy and discernment. He was committed to walking wisely or in wisdom in all that occupied his time. He committed himself to the Lord's inspection in verse number two. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? Now, the question there, contextually, so I may be fair with the text this morning, is of David wanting the, the tabernacle to come up to Jerusalem. This is written on the heels of Uzzah reaching out and staying the ox cart, and David forestalling bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. So the question there is, God, when is your presence going to come into my life, into my city? But that is the question each Christian home should be asking. When is our home going to be filled with the Spirit of God rather than the Spirit of this age? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. David was committing himself to the Lord's inspection. David invites the Lord to inspect his house. He promises that his house would be a model home, one to which the Lord could come at any time and inspect of his own free will. The word perfect means without blemish. As the high priest examined a, a, a calf that was brought for sacrifice, it had to be without blemish. So David assures God here that he and his home would come to be a friend of God in a holy fashion. David would see that it, to it that his heart was unblemished as that sacrificial lamb. That is the commitment that our home should have. Husbands and wives, examine what you consume in your times of amusement. Dads and moms, commit to not allowing anything within the walls of your home that you wouldn't have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be entertained by if they were seated right beside you. I remember as a child, some of you think, well, you're the pastor, you must live perfect. You can talk to my parents, and they can tell you I wasn't. I can tell you the times that my father, when I had my mowing business as a teenager, would find a tape. I know you kids don't even know what that is. That fit into my Walkman. And in front of me, my dad would snap the tape, he'd throw it in the garbage, and punishment came. And today, as a father, I'm grateful for my dad and my mom who were consistent. Oh, it did not make me their friend. But my dad was more concerned about being my father, and my mom was more concerned about being my mother than worried about what my feelings were in the moment about what I love. Your flesh, young people, loves sin. It always will. And sin is pleasurable for a season. Commit your home to wholesome values. Then we find letter B and finally this morning, a conviction about holiness. In verses 7 and 8, he closes the psalm by saying this. And by the way, these are pretty clear and pretty blunt verses. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. That word dwell means abide and have lasting impact. Oh, how our entertainment choices dwell and have lasting impact. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early, that word early has the sense of very quickly, immediately, once I spot it, I will move. Destroy all that wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the wicked doers from the city of the Lord. 
David formulates here both a personal and public conviction as to what is right and what is wrong and what should be removed from his life. He determined to rid his home of deceitfulness and lies or that which causes us a loss of opportunity to serve God. And I would say to you that most of the world's earthly amusement and entertainment, fleshly, lust-filled entertainment, is causing you to miss opportunity after opportunity to serve the Lord. He determined in verse number 8 to rid his home of all kinds of evil. Oh, that we would have convictions and commitments such as these. In closing, I ask a very direct question, since this message has been very direct. How long, and I put it in your notes so that you can take home and stew over it in anger at me. I hope not. I hope that your home, like our home, has to confront this every day and we fight through it. By God's grace. But that doesn't mean parents, husbands, and wives that we quit. How long will you continue to make excuses for the filth that you allow and encourage in your home? There are tools to help clean up some of the garbage that is out there. I encourage you to use them if you can. But is that really the solution? Will we choose our faith? Over the filth that is in this world. Father, help our homes to be different. I realize, I recognize, Lord.